I'm Dina Weibel Swanson. Professionally, I go by Dina Weibel. And I'm an anthropologist of religion who studies sacred places, including outer space as a sacred place, um, and people's relationships with places, sacred objects, and rituals that take place in specific locations. Okay, that is so much stuff to unpack, <laughs> but I'll just go straight to the one because I met you at a what was supposed to be a private rocket launch of people's cremated remains into space and it didn't happen because it was sort of on the payload with like NASA and stuff. And so anyways, all kinds of reasons it didn't happen, but we were there to consider sort of death in space. And then you're there looking at religion in space. Um, in, in general, do religions have a lot to say about space or do you focus mostly on individual peoples within religious traditions and how they're experiencing space. So in other words, do you study what the religions say about space or how do people who, who say they're part of these traditions interact with space? It's definitely more the latter, although I'm open to understanding about the former. Um, if we go back to like the earliest days of when religions came into existence, there wasn't a sense of space the way that we know space now. It was, there's the sky. Um, and we have some fascinating stuff where the way people talk about space and the way people talk about religion overlap because they're talking about things that are not of this earth, things that are the unknown, things that aren't mundane, um, things that are, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Ethereal, cosmic, celestial, a lot of these same terms get used. Um, and so you have people talking about the, the heavens in a lot of different traditions with the heavens kind of overlapping with the sky. Um, you also have the Greeks, the Romans, the Aztecs, uh, ancient Indian gods and goddesses associated with different stars and planets. Um, but what I'm looking at predominantly, all of that stuff really interests me. But what I'm mostly interested right. in right now is how people who are involved in space exploration, whether they're astronomers, engineers, uh, flight surgeons, astronauts, how their understanding of space, the cosmos, the great beyond, um, is influenced by their religious beliefs, and then how their knowledge of space in turn influences the way they think about larger questions of religion. So I guess my feeling is that we've got these two big kind of areas. And if there's a Venn diagram, they sort of overlap quite a bit. And I'm interested in that overlapping area. Um, when you interview people about their experiences, or either thinking about or studying space or experiencing space, do you find that their faith traditions give them hope or understanding about space or does science and that kind of work sort of conflict? Usually there's not a conflict. I mean, there are definitely people I've spoken to who aren't religious at all. Um, and for them, you know, religion is something they rejected generally in the name of science. Um, with the Vatican astronomers that I've done research with a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them had yeah. a pattern where, they were raised in religious families, and then they started to get interested in science, felt that there was a conflict, started to leave religion behind, and then had somebody like a trusted advisor, a priest, a Jesuit usually, 
um, come and like bring them back into the fold. And so they learn to kind of come. Yeah. And it's not like I didn't, I don't have a huge sample size, right? There aren't that many people who are at the Vatican observatory and I have to be careful about not identifying them. But I would say that was a theme I heard from about half of the folks I spoke to there. Um, And so then they ended up with this kind of combined understanding of religion and science in that scenario. But those are Jesuit astronomers, right? So they're like the religious experts who are also the space experts. For most people I've studied, they are just kind of doing their own thing religion-wise. They're raised in a particular tradition, and then they get involved in space exploration. And where I see religion come out is how they understand why they got involved in space exploration. In some cases, there's a sense that space exploration does have a religious purpose. So um, I've spoken to people who send probes into space from these various agencies, JPL, APL. And for some of them, there's this strong sense of purpose. Um, One of them in particular told me that he believed we're supposed to steward creation and you can't steward what you don't understand. So getting out there and seeing what Europa looks like or getting out and, you know, studying what asteroids are and what they're made of, those things allow, from his perspective as a Christian, he felt that that made him a better Christian to have a better understanding of space so that he could understand what it was that he was being asked to do by God. Um, I spoke to a Quaker who believed that the still small voice that influences people um, has encouraged space exploration and that we're meant to be going out into space. On the other hand, with some of the astronauts I've spoken to, they always have to answer questions about, you know, to themselves, how did I end up as an astronaut or why am I in this position? And for some of them, there's a sense of a calling or a sense of God pushing them in a particular direction, God wanting them to be astronauts. And some of them actually get very involved with um, the ministry and things afterwards. So um, there's, there's a lot out there. I'm also really interested in the folks who have had a chance to participate in religious rituals in space and what it means to be, you know, whether you're reading the Torah in space or whether you're taking communion in space or praying toward Mecca in space. I haven't spoken to anybody, but there's public stuff about somebody who did that. Um, (laughs) It's fascinating to me. Like, what does that mean? Somebody I spoke to considered what he was doing was Buddhist meditation. Um, Although he's not truly a Buddhist, this particular person is sort of a, choose your own adventure when it comes to religion. Um, But he thought (laughs) that he was doing something similar to Buddhist meditation in by meditating in microgravity and losing all sense of his body. Um, Something that you can't really do very well on earth. So how does that work? And, and what does religion do when you're in space and how does it comfort people and how does it explain to people what's happening to them? And how does it explain to them what humans are supposed to do and what the future of humanity will be? 
it's interesting. You sort of prefaced it by saying, so I study more kind of these individuals and their individual experiences now that intersects with their faith tradition. But you started off talking about, I think, this formative myth in many places, which is we have to wrestle with the sky. We can't get there. We can't touch it. So what is it? So is it a dome? Is it just some other? It's a place we can't get to. So that becomes where the gods live. That becomes a place unattainable to us. We study it to try to figure out, ooh, does it tell our fortune in the stars? These people, it's it's interesting, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later than those myths have been created, these people are actually going into that place. I feel like, and this might just be because you are talking to people individually, I feel like these faith traditions don't quite reach past the atmosphere, <laughs> and these people are kind of left to sort of make their own way. I have a faith tradition that is very centered in this world mm-hmm. that tells me what to do in this world, but it doesn't tell me what to do once I get beyond it. Right. And I think that's, I mean, I think human beings are going to have to kind of figure this out. I think right now we're just taking little baby steps into um, space, as it were. Like the moon is not really that far away, right? So you just kind of go to the moon and back. Um, We send other stuff out there and they send us pictures, but we're not really out there. I'm very curious. And part of what I'm interested in doing is sort of creating a picture of what's happening now so that we have some kind of baseline <laughs> for when people go out into space. And Judaism is a great example. So Judaism is so based on being on Earth, right? So you have a lunar calendar. Right. Um, you have so many things that are, you know, as somebody who studies sacred places on Earth, what do you do when you don't have access to the sacred places? You know, Jerusalem is off in the distance. It's a light in the sky. You know, what does that mean? And what does it mean if you're on Mars and are you going to still be interested in what the moon is doing as it orbits earth? Or are you going to look at Phobos and Deimos and, or Phobos and Deimos and try to figure out if there's a way to adjust to that? Because that's not what it was based on does that count as my new, do these two moves count as my new <laughs> yeah and i don't I, I have a feeling it wouldn't but it would be fascinating to see if there was a sense to to do that and what happens if you don't have a moon so i think i suspect that the earth um as human beings you know go out and start settling in other places if we do um that it's going to become really important like earth is going to become an incredibly important light in the sky or if we get further out, then the sun is going to become an incredibly important light in the sky. But I may be wrong. You know, things could shift and we could lose that, lose touch with that connection. Um, I want to ask about this must come into this sometimes. I feel like the religions that are space focused are new religions that would be considered maybe a little more focused on possibly extraterrestrial aliens the big shift for religion, in fact, there are people put to death for this, was, hey, we're not the center of the universe. So now that we know there's these other planets out there, that instantly opens up this new view that, well, we might not be the only ones who were created by our creator God or who were generated by the universe who might be conscious. Do these people, even though they don't know anything, how much do you talk to people who fervently believe or think we really need to think about alien life and how that would change our relationship to our own religion? Or do most people, that just does not come up? Um, it comes up fairly frequently. I think most people I know who do work in space are really familiar with, I'm sure you are, but I'll mention it, the Drake equation, right? So I won't go into the details of it, okay. but the 
mathematical idea that just based on the sheer number of planets and the sheer number of galaxies that have planets, the number of structures that are similar to the sun and the earth are almost endless. Like we can't even conceptualize it. And so even if um, life were to arise or maybe there's something like panspermia, life shows up and starts growing in different places and it's super, super rare. Even if it's vanishingly rare, it means there are countless living things out there that we just don't know about. And a lot of astronauts, physicists, astronomers, engineers I've spoken to feel very confident that there must be life in space. I went through once the interviews I'd done looking for mentions of it and I don't think I've spoken to anybody who said that there's for sure not, right? People are really open to the idea. One of the astronauts I spoke to was really convinced of it when he had this experience. Okay, so let me back up a little bit. Are you familiar with the overview effect? No, tell me. So I've, I'd heard about the Drake equation. No, what is the overview okay, effect? Okay, the overview effect was a term that was coined by Frank White in the late 80s. And he writes about it in his book where he was in an airplane and he was realizing that from an, the air, you can see more of what's going on in the ground than people experience themselves. So you might see two cars, they're approaching each other. From their perspective, they have no idea they're approaching each other. They can't see each other. But from a plane, you can see a larger overview. He thought from space, astronauts could also see like a greater overview, like you can see weather patterns and your understanding of what's happening on the earth on some level becomes much more big picture, understanding relationships, understanding connections that are impossible to see when you're at a smaller level. And he began interviewing astronauts about this and quite a few of them had looking at the earth from space had a real impact on them. And he ended up terming this thing that takes place, the overview effect. And I've talked to a lot of astronauts about this, where seeing the earth from space, they understood things that they hadn't really gotten before. It's kind of like something becomes, it goes from being abstract to real. So I might, a, a typical right. one you... They could have read it in a book before, but they hadn't seen right, it. Right, exactly. Themselves. So a typical one might be, you know, the borders that exist between countries are largely imaginary. And an astronaut looks at the Earth from space and goes, oh, wow, you know, during the daytime, I can't see a border between these two countries. <laughs> um, I mean, they knew that, but it's different to actually see it. Um, although I did have, I've had a couple astronauts tell me, of course, you can see the borders. Oh, my gosh. Look at North and South Korea. Look at the border between the U.S. and Mexico. You can definitely see it, especially at night, where the electricity is and where it's not. <laughs> but um, the idea of it is that these greater things, another one that's big is how thin the atmosphere is. So William Shatner is a really good example of this. He went up into space last year or two years ago now, and it was October 21. And he, um, the moving from the blue sky into the blackness of space really freaked him out. And he talked about it being the blackness of death. And he talked about the earth being this sort of used a lot of bed imagery. It was interesting. I wrote a paper about this. So, um, you know, the comforter, the pillow, the bed of the earth, and then you're somehow out in space and it's black and it's death and it's horrifying. And it really depressed him. And he felt very much like it was 
it scared him how not friendly space was. And he was expecting it to be very glorious. And instead it was not welcoming. Um, another example of that um, are astronauts who've looked out and become hyper aware of how thin the atmosphere is. And the idea that we're somehow, you know, creating global climate change and endangering this tiny little protective covering. I think it was Mark Kelly who said, or no, Scott Kelly, who said it's like a contact lens on the surface of the earth. It's that thin. And that's all that's protecting us from the danger of space. And so becoming like aware of the reality of that is part of what's known as the overview effect. But so is seeing, you know, being on the moon and seeing the earth up and being able to cover it up with your thumb and seeing it as this like, spaceship in space that all the humans are on so that awareness of what the earth is because you're seeing it from outside the earth that's the overview effect um and that has a really strong effect on astronauts often not all of them i've had some who were like eh, i knew all that already it didn't affect me <laughs> um but that is one of the kind of classic things that people experience. A lot of them um, understand it from a religious perspective. And I talked to one evangelical Christian astronaut who talked about he could appreciate God, like the earth as a work of engineering. He was an engineer himself. So he's like, now this is God, the engineer. I can see what God, the engineer made. And I'm seeing it from the outside in a way that I couldn't have before. So I can appreciate it better now. Um, on the other hand, I started to talk about the Drake equation. One of the astronauts I interviewed was an Apollo astronaut. And I have to, as an anthropologist, I have to not use people's real names, which is tricky when there are very few astronauts. But <clears throat> he had a chance to be in complete darkness um, during his mission. He was orbiting the moon. He was simultaneously in the shadow of the moon and the earth. He was able, he was out of contact with NASA because he was on the other side of the moon. Yeah. And it was dark in the capsule and he turned off all the lights. He got dark adapted and he looked outside and he said there were more stars than he had ever seen at one time before. He said he couldn't see between them. He said it was like this, like just solid sheet of stars. And he said he wasn't prepared yeah. for that. He wasn't ready for that. And it was, he had to like, he had to go back to work and stuff, but he processed it later. And he started thinking that if there were that many stars and those stars had planets, there had to be life out there. And he got very interested in sort of the ancient alien stuff. And when I talked to him, mm -hmm. he was pretty matter of fact about thinking, you know, it's possible that we came from somewhere else and they, you know, came to the earth and set us up and, but it made him feel very sure that we were going to solve problems like faster than light travel because he felt like our ancestors were from space. And so we were destined to go into space. And I remember, and I have to say, I had one of those moments like, oh gosh, never meet your heroes kind of thing. I'm in an, <laughs> I'm in an anthropology department. I know a lot of archaeologists. So hearing that, you know, like the ancient Sumerian gods were from space was like, okay. Um, the archaeologists grind their teeth. <laughs> right. <and like. laughs> but um, that idea of looking into space and being 
unable to process it. I was hearing that from some of the astronauts I interviewed. And so I came up with a term um, myself echoing the overview effect and called it the ultraview effect. So um, the overview effect is you look at Earth and you get a better understanding or you get a sense of what it means that we live on a planet um, or some kind of like heightened understanding. The ultraview effect is looking out into space and realizing that you don't know anything. Um, the same astronaut said, I won't use the, the term he used, but he said, we don't know stuff. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> and I've talked to uh, other astronauts since then who've described it as a solid white wall. Um, I've seen pictures from the Webb telescope that do a fairly good job of showing just how many stars are kind of compacted in one place. But if you think about the fact that neither one of those things we're seeing are things that humans could have seen a hundred years ago, right? You know, even 60 years ago. I have to do my math here. I'll say 75 and make sure I'm on the safe side. Um, <laughs> to catch all exactly. of Exactly. Um, but the idea that there are things that we can experience with our own eyes that are not things that you can do on the earth fascinates me and how that affects people and how it's upsetting. Um, there's some interesting psychological studies that indicate when you experience awe, it throws you really, really hard. And that religious understanding is one way to kind of get a grasp on it and to kind of tame it and to get yourself to feel better. And um, one article I read um, by Juan Verputin argued that religious monumental architecture, like the pyramids and maybe even, you know, the cathedrals of Europe, what they were trying to do was create awe. And that awe could be engaged and then made people more open to religious understandings and religious explanations. So it's kind of like you create the awe and then you offer the religious explanation of it. And it provides um, kind of a comfort and gets more people involved in the religion, um, obviously. But I think a lot of – So that's oh, – Go ahead. I do want to ask – oh, no, I was just going to say about exactly that point because as I was thinking about when you were talking about this awe that's brought up by these <clears throat> natural – not constructed experiences people are having. And then when you said these religions sort of like comfort mm -hmm. you with awe, but then I immediately went to religions also try to create these experiences of awe, but you're right. They try to create this experience of awe, but it's the rare religion that tries to get you to feel uncertain and unsettled and then tells you, right, that's what you're supposed to do. Feel uncertain <laughs> right. and unsettled. Stay there. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> we made you feel uncomfortable, but we have the answer. So go out and now come back. So it's, there is some level of comfort. In any of these religious things or in the people's experiences, maybe the person who looks out and got scared looking at all the stars, we do not – it is so far beyond our technology to be able to reach out to aliens. Some of the stuff I've seen lately is talking about it would take so long with the expanding universe for other technologies and other aliens and other races and us to reach them. There's a chance that the universe is expanding at such a rate. Even if there's alien life all over the expanding universe, it won't matter. We right. won't see it. So there's, they basically like that, almost like a white, they're putting up a wall and saying the fundamentals of reality about the way physics work will never allow us to see those things. 
And I don't know that to scientists, that must be like, well, that's boring. That's crushing. That's disappointing. There's nothing I can do. In awe, did you hear people, if they had these awesome experiences, did they all feel like they wanted to rush back to, I want to be comforted and I want to find an answer to this? Or did some of them sound like in the interviews like, no, no, now I sit in this state of uncertainty and unsettledness? Um, I don't have, like I said, a huge sample sizes. I think... Right. You cannot speak for <laughs> right. all of humanity. So yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking things like, well, you know, from the perspective of the astronauts, there's variation. So the one who had this experience that okay. I talked to about at first, he ended up writing a lot of poetry. He ended up sort of reworking his religious beliefs. He had come from a much more traditional Christian perspective. Um, the other one I said, the choose your own adventure guy, he's kind of up for anything. So I think he's much more comfortable with that sense of not knowing what's going on um, and loves exploring different ways of doing it. I can think of at least, you know, probably more than five, fewer than 10 different religions he's experimented with and talked about um, in terms of his own journey or whatever for understanding things. So I think he's kind of comfortable with the idea that there are things beyond. He told me that you're, like the heavens is where your spirit develops, where like religion is, like that's where you have this feeling. But then later on we got into a discussion and he got really irritated with me because I was asking him to describe the experience he had. And he was saying, you can't describe spiritual experiences. And I'm like, I think you can. <laughs> but it's like, well, you know, he'd have to like study it to be able to do it. Um, on the other hand, the guys at the Vatican Observatory yeah, I mean, the stuff they're studying on some level is like quantum stuff. It's one of them is studying um, Planck time, so the Big Bang, and what all space time is contained in a point and then it goes kablooey. What is time doing at that point? How does time operate at the very beginning of the Big Bang? And I have to use time words because I don't know how to talk without time words, but what is space, what, is, what does time do when space is the process of unfolding? Like that's heavy stuff. That's stuff that's so beyond my own comprehension. But for him, he said, you know, there's so much beauty in what he sees in the physics of the universe and there's this reinforcement and that's what I found with the Vatican astronomers was what they understand tends to reinforce their religious views. So that awe that we were talking about, they're experiencing that, but it makes sense to them because they're studying the creation their creator created. And they know from their perspective right. that they can't really understand it at that level. So the fact that it throws them is part of what makes them admire it, if that makes any sense. Oh, well, yeah. If So the vision is there is a, there is a creator who made this, and the creator's vision is always beyond me. So the creator is omniscient in a way I will never be. Then you'd always just, right, you'd look at a creation and just you'd be humbled because like, well, if I can't answer that, at least somebody understands it. The omniscient creator understood it, even if I can't understand it. And whatever my limits are, yeah, you'd feel like you're reaching God. If I can't understand this, oh, on the other side of this fence, that's God. Right. And there's comfort, too, in the knowledge. I'm speaking, uh, I would say in class, I'm speaking emically. 
I'm speaking from the perspective of the people I'm discussing, not my own perspective. Um, but there's comfort yeah. in knowing that there is a creator and that there is an order, even if it seems chaotic to me, I know that there's an order. So even if I, I can look for the order, I know it's there to find. And so there's comfort in that. It's not just complete chaos. Do you know what I mean? Do you? I do know what you mean. Uh, and I, I love that. What is the word emically? Okay. So in anthropology, we talk about an emic perspective and an etic perspective. And a good anthropologist tries to understand both. Okay. Emic is the perspective of the people in the community you're studying. So if I'm living with French nuns in Rocamadour, France, then I want to understand their views as French nuns and what they think about the place and what their jobs are and what they try to understand. This was the research I did in my 20s. Um, I'm trying to get that inside perspective. So as an anthropologist, we do interviews to get that perspective. And we also do what's called participant observation, which means we live with the people we're studying, we speak their language, we eat their food, you know, we do what they do. It's kind of like being embedded and it's usually for a long term. Um, the etic perspective, so emic is E-M-I-C. The etic perspective is this external perspective of people who are researching, who are trying to understand it from the outside. Kind of the classic example, I use this in class, so you'll be probably amused by this because yeah. I talk about um, keeping kosher. I talk to my students, I say, so why do Jewish people keep kosher? And obviously we talk about that not all Jewish people keep kosher, kosher but the ones who do. <laughs> right. And they'll say things like, well, because it's the, the rules. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the rules, but keep kosher because you've grown up thinking that pigs are gross and why would you want to eat that? Because they're gross. Or you maybe don't keep kosher and maybe you do eat you know pork in certain circumstances or maybe you don't do it because your mom would kill you if she ever found out or you know there's there's a lot of reasons it's not just the solid one right um you know some people it would be it's written down and that's what i have to do but a lot of people it's more complicated than that um an edit perspective might be somebody like marvin harris going well you know, these were people who were nomadic and pigs are not great animals to take with you if you're moving from place to place. Sheep work, goats work, pigs don't. Also, you know, you've got issues like trichinosis, where if you have improperly prepared pork, you can die from it. Same with shellfish. So these are external explanations for why somebody might keep kosher. They're not necessarily shared by the people in the community. But there's still explanations for it, if that makes any sense. Um, it, yes, it, it makes perfect sense. So the thing I like when you when you talked about this this emic understanding or this emic perspective, that's the one that felt like it was nestled in the felt experience of people. Even if someone gives you a surface answer, you could ask questions mm -hmm. or observe them together long enough to start seeing how there are deeper answers that they have. This outside one reminds me of the stuff with like um. Where anthropology and the study of human beings winds into psychology and neurology, where people are trying to, based mm -hmm. on how we are as human beings, guess back in time. Like this guy saying, well, right. thousands of years ago, what would have been the problem with pork? The emic stuff is people can tell you about how they feel exactly. and you can go deeper and have this. This etic thing all the etic thing always reminds me. 
it's the stuff sounds good. It's cool <laughs> theories, but it is so profoundly unprovable usually. Right. And so you're like, I don't know what to, it's a neat idea. And some of them resonate. Some of them don't. And maybe it can help. It's just another lens to help you maybe help push along research, but it's like unprovable. Right. The, and I, how, so where do you fall in the, in gathering those two different kinds of approaches? I really like the emic stuff. Um, also, because you're always getting original data, right? So I, yes, I'm sorry, right. I'm kind of adjusting things here and dropping things in the meantime. Um, I don't know how well you can edit this or if you can. <laughs> but I will, depending on, depending on my particular, I'll either decide to leave in all the movement oh. or I won't. <laughs> sorry, my son is asking me questions now. So. Um, I'm settling back down. Sorry about that. Okay, so yeah, the emic perspective. He's asking you questions like, Mom, Mom, today I felt stunned by the size of the universe. <laughs> Can we sit down and like go through some of your research to get some? <laughs> no, it's you're not wrong. We went to um, a stargazing thing on the big island of Hawaii this past summer, and it was the first time I got a chance to see the Milky Way from you know, a perspective where I wasn't just like driving through the Mojave desert and like stop and look out the car and then get yeah. back in. We were not on Mauna Kea, but we were on a beach that had very clear weather and we got dark adapted. All the lights they were using were red. And so it was like, here is the Milky Way. And my son was asking these questions like, what is the light here? How does this work? How long has this been out there? Um, all of these big questions. So I was like, yes, he's getting it. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, the, there's the inquisitive mind. Now we get to talk about this. Right. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, the emic stuff is helpful in terms of understanding that interior perspective. Most anthropologists would say it's not enough just to say, this is what people think. And this is what they're experiencing. We want to try to explain why they're thinking something or what they're experiencing and how that fits in with other ideas. Um, and I'm kind of, so I'm kind of like going back and forth between those things, trying to incorporate them together. So to get back to, you know, the thing that we saw or we were supposed to see where the ashes were meant to be sent into space. Part of me is like, Correct. I'm interested in the people who do this for a living how they make their decisions to do this, what people are experiencing as they attend. Going to it myself was um, a type of participant observation to kind of understand what it's like to attend the memorial service and what it's like to go tour the spaceport. Yeah. Um, but I would need to be able to step back and say, there are other ways of disposing of the dead. How does this compare with those? Um, what does this tell us versus, you know, a quick burial of somebody within three days of their death? How is that different from this? How is this different from um, people dying but maintaining a Facebook page and folks writing on their Facebook page on their birthday even though they've passed? You know, what, what is that like? What is this like? What does it mean? How does, how does a person have some kind of continued existence, social existence after death? I'm fascinated by um, what we were seeing because people 
seem to understand the cremated remains as the person, at least in some way. So um, one of them that I won't go into too much detail because I want to protect people's information, but there was somebody who um, was blind and he had been interested in space and one of his loved ones had been talking about um, his desire to go into space, even though he had limited vision and the slide for him said something like fulfilling your dream to be the first blind astronaut in space. And I found myself thinking, how does that personhood attach to an ounce or two or eight of cremated remains? And I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm just really curious how that identity as a blind person continues when somebody has been cremated. So there are other ways of understanding sort of cremated remains or the dead sticking around after they live. So it gets into other things that anthropologists talk about, but like that's one of the things that I'm fascinated by. Or the idea that somehow a person is still themselves when they get sent into space, even if it's a portion of cremated remains. Um, Whereas I feel like you're probably aware that the same company allows you to get a DNA swab and have your DNA sent into space. No, that's interesting. Talk about you. I mean, your cremains. So there's bits, I mean, DNA is still part of right. you. So the saliva, whatever came out of the saliva. Yeah. But for me, I mean, just trying to think it through, I don't feel like if my saliva went into space, it would feel quite the same. Like I went into space if that makes any sense. Maybe for some people it would. I would have to talk to more people. But I'm more used to thinking of, my father died in 2021. So he was cremated. And his cremated remains were buried in a military military cemetery, along with the cremated remains of his favorite cat, which is not allowed, so don't tell anybody. (laughs) But uh, we didn't mix them. They just all ended up in the urn together. But... um, that and without mentioning names, there was also I think there was someone at that memorial service that we went to who mentioned that there had been mixing, like some of some of the favorite animal or something had, right. had gone up with them too, and a lock of someone's hair, like yeah, a daughter exactly. or a niece, I forget who, but that some relative a lock of was burned up with. Right. Yeah. So there's that idea of somehow combining or something like that, but the personhood is retained in the cremated remains somehow. I mean, in terms of our idea of it, and the other thing. I am jumping from topic to topic here, so you can settle me down. But another thing that I'm connecting to that research is I'm very interested in what happens when something goes into space. So one astronaut I spoke to um, has been into space four times and always wears a crucifix. And they've got um, a crucifix for each mission. And there's something about that crucifix having been in space on that mission that sort of retained with that crucifix. And this person was Catholic and mentioned, and this is something I'd been thinking about. And then this person said it um, was that it was similar to something being blessed. So when I was staying with the Vatican astronomer, yeah, I was thinking about the pizza, 
pieces of saints' body right. and stuff for hundreds of years that were carried around, or people would go on pilgrimages to visit. Yeah, these something that had been sat on, so, a piece of someone's right. body. Yeah, and there's something about something being space flown that operates in a very similar way in the way that people think about it. Um, so, like, if this is my, a lot of times jewelry gets taken up. So if my wedding ring. Um, goes up into space and comes back down again, then my wedding ring will always have been in space. And that's something that's in my mind, it's not something where I can like measure it and say, oh, clearly this has been in space. But I can't, you know, you get your wedding rings blessed by the Pope. Well, that's also something you can't measure, but people would know it. And if it was important to them, then it would mean something that the object had changed. So the idea of somebody's cremated remains going into space, like the mission we both attended, um, were meant to go into space and then come back down. Then you have correct this, these ashes that have been in space and that transforms the ashes somehow. So they managed to be holding on to somebody's personhood, but also holding on to that spaceness. And I'm very interested in how those things work conceptually as well. Well, and it's, Interesting because the company does, it provides both experiences. So one is the larger rocket that goes up, leaves something up there and doesn't come back down. So for some people, they'll be up there forever. That appeals to one sense. And these other people, the person went up and came back down to me. And and the fact that this company knows people have different feelings about those two very different experiences with the remains. And when um, the owner was saying that they were going to allow people to take, you know, the additional ashes and put them in an orbiting one. That to me was interesting because I thought, all right, so those are two different things that are happening to your person. Yeah. Um, and how is that understood? And is anybody who is there anybody who doesn't want the person to have that, you know, the orbit? Because the orbit one, I understand you get given the coordinates so that you know when that vehicle is passing overhead which is kind of fun. I, oh, wow. Okay. I can imagine somebody saying, you know, oh, Bob is going to be overhead in 15 minutes. Let's go outside, you know. Um, but at the same time, that is eventually going to burn up the ones in orbit, right? The, saddle, the orbit's going to decay. And then that spacecraft will burn up in, or- in the atmosphere. But then there's the other ones where they send them out into deep space and they presumably never come back. <laughs> so there's like three different things happening right. there. <laughs> And, um, um, so that, uh, that's just making me think about the different relations. I mean, really it's figuring out what is my relationship to this dead body that no longer responds as a, what do I do? What do we do with, what do we do with dead bodies? Right. And, and I want to ask about that because I think there is a religious way to the body's nothing, body's mm-hmm. nothing. We don't care. Or body's something sacred, even though it doesn't have a soul in it, or even though it's not alive, it's sacred. I feel like that happens in religion where there's some stuff which is don't it, the body doesn't matter anymore. It's whatever. And then some places treat it sacredly in space. I feel like the same situation happens. You hear people talk about this where all this money spent on space research, all this stuff spent studying, looking at the stars, all this trying to get to the moon and Mars. It is a waste of part. It's a waste of effing time. It's a waste of effing money. Why are we doing this? Space has nothing to do with us in the same way that people sometimes argue. Who cares what God says? We have to figure out how to live here mm. now. All this God stuff about what's going to happen after we die or what where we were before, I don't care. 
Did you, do you experience that from people? Yours might be a smaller subset of people who are kind of intricately interested in space, but have you gathered any counterpoint stuff about space where people argue this stuff is not only am I sort of incurious about it, it's meaningless and it's a waste of money and time to spend time on studying these things that are far out in space. Yeah, I mean, you come across that. I haven't come across it in the people I interview, mostly just because I'm not seeking out folks who, if, if you're involved in space exploration. And a lot of them are doing right, it. Exactly. So, I don't, right. <laughs> so you don't have a lot of people right. who are like working for NASA who are like, space is stupid. I mean, it just doesn't happen, right? They could find other jobs. <laughs> Correct. Um, right. And those jobs are usually sought after. You don't have the astronaut who's like, this is dumb. Why am I even doing this? Um, they could have gotten out a long time ago. Right. It's, I mean, it's a good job. It's stupid. And there's no reason for us to go into space. But oh, what Right. The, I mean, often they have to, like, apply over and over and over. I mean, like, you have to have a drive. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think for the folks who don't, I mean, they're really good rational reasons for it, which is there are still problems that are happening on Earth. Um, it's like you said, it's a huge time waste, um, huge, you know, waste of resources, um, a sense that you can't escape your destiny. So if the earth is going to be destroyed, then the earth is going to be destroyed. Whereas the folks who are interested in space, (coughs) excuse me, there's like a very strong sense of destiny, even among the atheists, which I find fascinating. So, Excuse me. Uh, especially when I was at a bless you. Thank you. There's something that takes place every year called the NASA Human Research Program Investigators Workshop, and I went to that twice. And it's mostly space medicine. There's some space psychologists and stuff, but a lot of it is physiologists, people trying to deal with you know what it's like to be in zero gravity and the effects that it has on people or the radiation. And this is where you find out you know stuff that's happened to astronauts. Um, I spoke a lot at length to somebody the last time I was there who was an expert on back pain and they brought him in because it's a big issue with like adjusting to zero gravity. So like trying to figure out all of these human things and the folks who are doing this are not likely to go into space themselves, but there is a very strong sense, even among the ones that are not religious, that we are going to go into space. We are going to settle space and that it's just going to happen. So I was talking to a couple of them and one of them had told me, well, we go into space and we get broken and our bodies don't work anymore. And so, you know, that's the problem. And I mentioned it to somebody else and he was like, well, no, that doesn't matter because we will overcome all the problems. I don't care if we have to get prosthetics. I don't care if we have to do this, that, or the other thing, it's going to happen. And this person was a self-described atheist who was like, you could not tell him we were not going to go into space. So the sense that there was this destiny that it was already pre-written that the, the, the prophet had foretold. I mean, it was that level of sureness about it. And I found that really super fascinating. One of the things that's kind of amusing is when you talk to folks at NASA, and I have to admit, I'm people do have argued like Roger uh, Lanius has, and uh, another guy, I think AJ Smith has argued that space passion is sort of religious on its own. So you have a bunch of people who kind of share a viewpoint. They're really fixated on something not of this earth they really have the sense that this destiny is going to unfold. It looks very religious-y on the surface. Yeah. And I, I yeah. will admit that I'm a true believer, right? So I'm 
it's I'm not just observing this. I'm also a big space person. I love space. I'm passionate. The fact that I get to do this for a living is really exciting. Um, but if you say to folks, well, what if this is just a fad? So like, you know, 20th century, 21st century, and then people realize that it's not doing anything and they just stop and it just doesn't continue anymore. What if it's like, you know, for a while, tulip bulbs were this huge fad in the Netherlands and people spent a ton of money on them and then it just stopped being so important. And they just look at you like, no, yes, that can't happen. <laughs> That's not going to happen. <laughs> what are you talking about? And, you know, I, I've heard astronauts talk like there's a VR. I've got my VR helmet over here. I, I play with VR. And there's a company called Felix and Paul, and they do these cool videos that they filmed on the International Space Station. They're in 3D, and they're, you know, all the way around you. And they have this camera that's like a ball with cameras all the way around it. And they just set it floating in the International Space Station. Oh, wow. And so I get on my uh, swivel chair, and I put the helmet on. And you can't really go anywhere. It's just a movie, but you can spin around and pay attention to what's there and what's written on this packet and what this person's doing over there. And um, one of the more recent ones had um, um, an Italian astronaut, uh, Luca, I think it's Luca Palminteri. I always get his last name mixed up, but he was talking about genetically modifying humans to make them better set for space that's what i was gonna ask yeah okay Mm -hmm. and he was saying you know two hands well what if we had four hands what if i had a tail that helped me balance and i heard scott kelly talking recently on the radio about yeah there's going to be genetic modification to make us live in space better than sign me up for it and i'm thinking okay so that's kind of a slightly extreme but all right and then uh luca talking about having extra arms and a tail i'm like okay so this is passion, right? These are people who are seriously true believers. Um, and yeah, there might be ways to modify the human body to fit them into space better and make us need less oxygen or be able to operate on the surface of a meteorite or whatever. So I think, I know that's not obviously religion, but there are always going to be aspects of religion that tie into moral questions, ethical questions. If you're made in God's image, what does it mean if you have extra arms and a tail now? You know? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, thinking about the transitive properties, which is what you were doing with the cremains, about how much of this can this maintain a philosophic. And scientific identity as a part of me, if it's gone here and it's smaller and smaller, when is it still me? Yeah, when you were mentioning kind of the transhumanism, genetic Mm -hmm. adjustment of human beings, the question becomes, we don't have to wrestle with it because we're all pretty, we're all pretty uh, homogenous as a species. There are massive differences, but we sort of, they're not that different. They've been around for a long time. Wildly new different than how those people, again, if there are four-armed people and two-armed people, Eventually, science fiction has plenty of stories about how the four-armed people eventually revolt or they're treated badly by the two-armed people. The same stuff would happen, and then those people don't identify as human beings anymore. They identify as something else, and that could absolutely happen. How how long can a human (laughs) being be a human being? How many adjustments can it go through? Yeah, Yeah. that's a good question. I have another friend, John Bieleski, who's an anthropologist, and he's been studying Mormon transhumanism. And in Mormonism, there's the notion that God was very human-like and that 
Jesus, the son of God is not God. They don't have a Trinity um, because God got Mary pregnant and they had a son just the way that I, you know, my, my family was started. And um, the idea that God had somehow a glorified body, there are a very small number of Mormons who identify as transhumanists who believe that it's through technology that we will have a glorified body like God. And that's what we're meant to do. And John Bieleski has written about this. And I remember chatting with him and he was talking about, um, you mentioned your bus partner. He was talking about Satanists who were also transhumanists. And I was like, Ooh, do they know about the Mormons? And he's like, yeah, they're friends. <laughs> so <I'm> like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> So that's one of those things that helps create bonds across religion. Um, But it's fascinating to think about how those ideas get worked into different religions and what religions will do to change and adapt if and when we become, you know, permanently, you know, off earth as well as on earth. So having thought about these things so much, but also because of your training and your profession and your education and your philosophy about how to how to study human beings in anthropology, um, what is it do you want? What are your feelings? How have your feelings evolved about space from maybe maybe had I don't know, started with science fiction and thought space was cool and then had these things happen along the way? They're like, wow, this kind of affirms that this is a cool thing to study. Has your view about how religion and space or about space changed significantly in your years on this planet? Oh, gosh. I mean, my first sense of it was watching Star Trek with my dad and deciding at age 10 that I was in love with Han Solo, which was a very strong memory that I can remember (laughs) clearly. Um, And then after that, all my fun space stuff was, you know, my play was with having a blaster and with aliens and different planets and things like that. Um, I think my sense of what space is has obviously become much more complex and more nuanced. So even though I know that I (laughs) know very little, um, I think I have a better sense of what things are and how at least the solar system is structured and set up and what people do, um, a better sense of sort of the physics involved, um, than I did you know, even 10 years ago. I don't know. It's just so, so big, so incredibly difficult to sort of encapsulate into thought. But do I have a better sense of what, you know, the Oort cloud is? Do I have a better sense of the fact that there is a spacecraft orbiting Ceres, which is a dwarf planet in the middle of the asteroid field? Um, yeah. you know, a, a better sense of what's out there in the different orbits and gosh, you know, Pluto losing planet status in my lifetime. That's something. Um, was that, a, was that a hard hurt? It kind of was. We were, we were having, I know you're going to be shocked in 2006. We had, a, I got married and we decided to have each table be a different planet and Pluto was going to be one of the planets. And then they declared Pluto a non-planet right before we got married that is wow (laughs) so 
So what did you decide? Yeah, did you, we did had to put a question clearly? mark. What is it, like a dwarf We had to put a question mark on Pluto. <laughs> question mark. But we already had people on Pluto. And so it was fun because like the toasts and things for the wedding, there was a lot of joking about what planet people were on. Obviously, the Uranus planet got a lot of, we, I had to be very careful who got sat there. Um, but the Pluto people were like, well, you yes. know, do we are we dis- disrespected? What's going on? But it was fun. I mean, that was just the whole thing. But um, yeah, we got these big inflatable um, planet things and my husband was able to create centerpieces out of them and have a little, um, little spacecraft orbiting them. Not like, in, not animated, but like, you know, something on the surface of Mars or whatever. Anyway, yeah. it was, it was fun. It was um, about what you would think if you know me. <laughs> Wait, I also love the fact that you almost in it, you unintentionally, it just developed it, rigged up your own little like solar system model UN there where people uh-huh. just in the span of a few hours of the wedding started associating with just because you named the table, right. people started associating with the planetary body they were, the, whose table exactly. they were. Exactly. The judge who married us and his toast um, was apologizing to the men at the Venus table and the women at the Mars table, which was ridiculous. But. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, no, that was super fun. We were at the sun, of course, because uh, the the bridal party was at the sun, so the big orbitums. But yes, we thought about this. We also had um, sage derby cheese because it's cheese with a sage um, ribbon through it, which makes it green. And then we found um, an article that argued that the moon did have the same density as certain types of cheese, and we printed that out and had it by the green cheese. This was, we spent a year planning this and it was very nerdy. We'd also just uh, co-authored an article. My husband, if I didn't mention it, Glenn E. Swanson, he's a space historian and he was chief historian at the Johnson Space Center before we met. So um, a lot of my- This is what academics are called to do for their family (laughs) life events. I understand. (laughs) So it was one of those things where I was like, oh, a space historian. Yeah. Okay. I'll go out with him. So, hit it all. Do you? Um. You had so every kids. If kids like sci-fi and space, oftentimes it really is. It's about fantasy. It's about imagination. And when you get older, you learn stuff, and it feels like you feel a little concretized. You start feeling a little stony and rocky about. Well, I know these things about the universe and the questions that we don't know. Well, I know people are working on them, and it starts to feel sort of controlled. Do you ever have any dark or awesome feelings like the ones you des- the one you described that William Shatner had or the person who sat in the dark and realized I can't process this and does that make you feel more excited about studying space or does it ever make you feel slightly depressed or slightly cynical or slightly dark about the fact that this big cold lifeless universe is out there and we know it according to science i don't know i get accused of being a pollyanna pretty frequently so um (laughs) i'm more likely to be i don't understand it but i'm sure it's all going to work out that's kind of my perspective um i i'm hardcore agnostic which means i'm kind of open to different other other people's different religious beliefs because as far as i'm concerned that could be the true one you know i don't know um and so that's true for the atheists as well. Maybe they're right. I don't know. And I'm sort of, com- you asked me about being comfortable with the lack of knowledge. And I feel like that's kind of where I am, like just embracing, knowing that I don't know what's going on. Um, that being said, yeah. occasionally I'll have like these weird thoughts, like, you know, you mentioned 
maybe civilizations are so far apart from each other that we'll never come into contact with each other. And every once in a while, I'll think something like, well, if the people who believe in reincarnation is true, maybe that's the only way to move quickly from one planet to another is to die and then be reborn (laughs) somewhere else. Hmm. Um, Or random thoughts like that. Another thing is, you know, hearing more about, I forget what they call them now. They're not UFOs, but they're, um, you know, the, the unidentified object. You're right. They do have right. a new name. Yeah. And I find myself going between being very cynical, like, oh, yeah, that again, to what if it really is something? Now, that would be interesting. What if this is why, you know, we've had this technological breakthrough and this technological breakthrough? Hmm. Wasn't there like a former... Um, governmental official in Israel who's written books about how we're in contact with aliens now. Maybe. And famously in the past couple of years, in fact, I talked to my friend, it happened during COVID where I think the air force or the government finally, they were ordered to make unclassified the air forces information about here, are the UFOs or whatever they're calling them. Now. Right. Here's the stuff we've seen and can't explain. Right. So here's the reports on it. And those are fascinating because it's like, well, it could be somebody else's technology. Of course, it doesn't have to be from space. You know, maybe it's time travel or maybe, you know, some other kind of a multiverse thing going on. Who knows? I think it's funny how everybody jumps to aliens because I'm like, there are a lot of explanations that wouldn't even require aliens. But I don't know. I'm not a big conspiracy theorist for sure. I definitely want factual information and evidence But on some level, you mentioned, you know, my dark thoughts at night. Every once in a while, I'll be like, what if there really is knowledge that's being kept from us? Hmm. So just just an idea to play with. Um, Like the the fusion thing that just happened, or was it fission? The thing that just... Where they generated more energy. They say they generated more energy than they put in. And that was a couple days after I read about a girl in um, England who had leukemia and there was some new treatment. And now that they've tried that, she doesn't have a trace of cancer anymore. And I'm like, hmm, wouldn't that be cool if both of those things were because, you know, alien technology is trickling in and they're being helpful. I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, more well, maybe the 70s and 80s, there is this sort of fantasy, right, that you go to the moon and then the aliens will notice us because we've done this thing. Yeah. And now that we've sent out Voyager or we've been to the moon or we've done whatever, they're going to be like, oh, we need to go talk to them. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know. I think that's similar to a religious impulse, the crying out in, in the wilderness and hoping that somebody's there who will be there and understand us and care about us. And so I think that um, is sort of a similar motivation for religion and space exploration. I I do think in so many ways there's overlap and in so many ways as distinct as they are. I mean, people get mad that there's religious aspects of space exploration. I get that all the time. People will say to me, there shouldn't be, this needs to be purely scientific enterprise. People who do this need to be, you know, atheists. Otherwise they're going to tear each other apart. Religion has got, you know, all of these sort of negative connotations in some populations. But in reality, humans are humans, I believe. And I think stuff we see humans do around the world tells us something about sort of what the built-in aspects of human nature are. 
And religion seems to be something that shows up. So do I think that the worst aspects of religion on earth have to go into space? No. But do I think aspects of religion that are positive, that give people comfort, that give people meaning, that provide explanations, that allow people to wake up in the morning and feel like they know what they're doing, it's not just all chaos. I think those things are very important um, in all human endeavors. And I think it's really important to remember that space exploration is a human endeavor. And we can't separate ourselves from the humanness of it.